Alright, they get water, orange juice, and what looks like cider. Taste it. Yep. It's fat. I drank fat. <laughs> Welcome to Bottle Episodes, a podcast where we discuss very special episodes of TV shows that focus their action on a single primary location. I'm CJ. And I'm Courtney. And today we are discussing the television sitcom Friends, which aired from 1994 to 2004, specifically the episode The One Where No One's Ready, which aired September 26th, 1996. Courtney, I was going to save this question for the end, but if you were Chandler when you were growing up or you identified with him, yes. now in your life, what kind of friend would you say you are out of the six? Mm. Or are you a combination of one or two or three of them? Ooh, ooh, good one. Very good one. I think I'm still at my core a Chandler. Mm. However, I do also recognize the Monica in me. Yeah. And the Phoebe in me. Oh, yeah? All right. Yeah, yeah. And what specifically? I I think that for me, I really enjoy... For Phoebe, for the Phoebe, I do feel like a little bit of a weirdo, but I feel kind of like a warm, friendly, harmless weirdo. Like I'm not doing anything to mess with anybody too much. I'm just having a good time. And then the Monica in me is that slightly ambitious part of me mm. that shows up every so often. And also, I, I will admit that I'm very much especially as I've gotten older, a little bit more on the adultier side of things. Like I'm starting to oh, feel sure. more comfortable with like. I think about Monica paying her bills like super early. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. Like, I think I'm starting to adopt those Monica-isms. But yeah, what about but, you? Are you a combination? How how do you feel? Oh my gosh. So of course, when I was a kid and like, you know, total smartass or fancied myself a smartass, it was like Chandler all the way. In high school, when I was beginning to sort of embrace what I perceived as eccentricity, <laughs> they weren't, by the way. But you know, when I fancied myself like, oh, this this weird kid sort of like on the outside of what's normal, then I definitely was like embracing my Phoebe. Yes. Now I feel like I'm ultimately self-aware enough to realize that I am just a Ross, just <laughs> no. alienating the shit out of everybody. And also a Rachel, which is to say just like boring. No, <laughs> just no. like So I am a Ross and Rachel are toxic together or they certainly have toxic elements and i'm just toxic all by myself <laughs> i am a ross and rachel hard disagree but also i love rachel and i feel like she does not get enough love and i will say this i i do feel bad for david schwimmer because again we all know ross is just the worst he's the worst but David, Schw David Schwimmer is actually like a really nice dude. Like he seems like a solid guy. Yes, 1000%. Maybe we'll tease this out during the actual episode because there is definitely some unlikable Ross traits going on. Oh, yeah. But I will say at the top that one of my hot takes or conflicted opinions that I have about the show or the character mm -hmm. is that Ross is unlikable for sure. But yes. he's also a distinctly written character. Like you feel like the writers know him so well and like know every beat and know every little tiny corner of his psyche. So Ooh. in that regard, he's a really well-written character. And Schwimmer, out of the six of them, I think is the most precise mm. actor. Mm -hmm. Some of them are acting from this place of natural charisma or like a finely toned 
charisma, like especially Jennifer Aniston. Not I to agree. say that she isn't skilled, but Schwimmer comes up with really specific yeah. gestures and little physical bits that, right. that definitely come from his like theater background. And you especially notice this in like the bloopers when mm. he says like a line over and over again. And you're like, oh, my God, he's doing that very specific thing with his hand nice. over and over and over again. So nice. oh, you wow. have to commend like how precise he is. Of a I agree with you. I think that Ross is really specific. And I think the writing in tandem with his performance is extremely strong. Yeah. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. We've already worked through our first hot take. I love it. We have. All right. Well, with that in mind, this episode is called The One Where No One's Ready. The bottle of the week is Monica and Rachel's apartment. We never leave it. The logline, courtesy of HBO Max, is Ross becomes frantic trying to get everyone ready to leave to hear his speech at the museum. Initial thoughts on this episode? I hate how much I understand where Ross is coming from. Yes. I hate it. I immediately was like, oh, no, I do. I do relate. I think that the writers did a good job of making us care about why Ross was so concerned about being late. Yes. It's a special occasion. Right. He's actually going to be speaking at it. Right. Um, it's a big deal for his career. Exactly. Right? He yeah. wants his friends and his significant others there. They throw in that line about the tables down in front. Everyone will see if we're late. So. I thought yeah. they did a good job of of laying all of that out um, yes. and and justifying his anxiety. You really feel it. And in terms of, you know, Ross's neuroticisms in the commentary, the producers specifically talk about how David Schwimmer was worried about how sympathetic or unsympathetic he would come oh. across in this episode, which is a little well, it's revealing that he had these concerns mm -hmm. as early as season three because he becomes way more like unlikable throughout the show correct so i feel bad for him that he was like fighting this battle behind the scenes sort of like <laughs> trying to save the reputation of ross geller for 10 years oh god <laughs> um but then also it's interesting that he raised it in particular in this episode because as we've talked about it is a very relatable problem that people have exactly yeah no this is a tension that people have in their relationships with their friends, with their family, with their significant others. And just to see it up on screen, I think that's why it really, really resonates with a lot of people. I was surprised, and I'll just jump into it. I was surprised by the tepid response to downright, uh, perhaps critically panned response to this episode by a lot of reviewers. That was nuts to me. I had not realized that until I went down my Wikipedia rabbit hole about yeah. this episode. Because it is so beloved among Friends fans. Yeah, it's... That yeah. you ask most Friends fans to name, like, your top five favorite episodes, your top ten favorite. It would be odd if this episode wasn't on that list. Right. Exactly right. Exactly right. When I think of Friends, the image I have is Joey wearing all of those clothes. That right. is the image I have in my head. That's That's what I think of. So for me to find out that... I don't know. Reviewers felt that it was cheap. It was kind of a stunt that they were basically copying off of Seinfeld, which which is funny because that is a criticism that was lobbed at this show kind of often, definitely at the beginning of its run. Yeah. And, yeah. and a little bit toward the end, toward the end of Seinfeld's run, for sure. When people were talking about Seinfeld's legacy, they right. would say, well, it spawned a lot of copycats, for example, Friends. 
Um, nowadays, mm. I feel like, well, they are still discussed in comparison with each other and often discussed in terms of Seinfeld being the more uh, sophisticated in terms of comedy. I just think that they're different. Yeah. With something like Friends, you're supposed to make a genuine investment in the central characters. Yeah. With something like Seinfeld, you're meant more to marvel at the intricate comedic design. And while you're marveling, you're not necessarily meant to sympathize with the main characters. Correct. Correct. So there's, much as there's a appreciate little bit of... them as vessels for the comedy. Right, right. There's just the Sean and Freud of them getting up to hijinks. Like, that's that's the joy for me of Seinfeld. The joy of Friends is it hits you a little bit harder in your heart place. They're doing two very distinct things. And I, and I think that just because they're half-hour comedies and they were in the 90s and they were both behemoths, Right. People right. just get and that. And aired really, on the same night. Aired yeah. on the same night. People <laughs> just get that confused and assume because of proximity that they were one was copying off of the other. Right. When they're just doing two wildly different things. So I don't know. I, I'm just I'm I'm shocked. I was shocked to find that was the case. And and as far as TV gimmicks go, bottle episodes have been around forever at this point. Right. And I think they did it very successfully. I, I was very impressed. I did not realize that they actually stayed in the whole the room the whole time. They stayed in that living room. The producers in the commentary also note the challenges. Like, of course, at the outset, you're as a producer, you're excited to do a bottle episode. I don't know if excited is the right word, but <laughs> you're relieved to do a bottle episode because you don't have to build any additional sets. You don't have to right. um, hire any guest performers. Right. But then the new challenges that arise are challenges of uh, blocking and and keeping that energy up. And especially when like six people are in a room, you have to really manage those entrances and exits. Yes. And the challenges even live in the writing, which is one of the things yes. I love about this episode. All three of the quote unquote stories are overlapping, yes. right? They're all interlocked yes. um, as opposed to like a typical sitcom episode, which is like, we're just going to have a scene that deals with the A plot, a scene that deals with the B plot, C plot, and sort of like toggle between them. Right, um, right. Until the 25 minute mark. Exactly. You have the writing going back and forth in between these plots, sort of line by line. Right, right. right. Everyone's character business is kind of like flowing into each other and, yeah. and, and weaved into each other in a way that feels more organic, which is it, really cool to watch. It really does. And it was just really impressive to see that it, it took a minute for it to sink in when I was watching the episode, but I'm like, wow, there is an A plot, a B plot and a C plot. Mm -hmm. A yeah. plot, obviously yeah. getting everybody to the museum, Ross freaking out about people not being dressed, by the way, shout out to Phoebe for being dressed in that killer yellow dress. She yeah. looked amazing. Um, and then we have this, I guess, is the, would you consider the B plot to be? Uh, the B plot is uh, Monica. Oh, is it Monica? Well, yeah. I mean, you know, it, it kind of doesn't matter, especially since they're all happening on top of each other. Yeah. But in terms of stakes or seriousness, okay, true, I would true. elect that Monica finding the old message from Richard on her answering machine, her ex Richard, stakes, um, that yeah. would count as the B plot. The C plot would be. Joey and Chandler's fight over the <laughs> chair. And then um, Phoebe would would almost be considered separately. At least that's the way the producers had it on the commentary, mm. that she would be like the D plot. So technically, writing wise, wow, yeah. you know, the word story being used in the loosest sense here. True. But that Phoebe's would be like the D plot, which yeah. is that she gets a hummus stain on her dress and now 
she too must find an outfit to wear at the gala. I do love that insanely large hummus splotch on her dress. Like it's so improbable. It's so good. Um, and the entrances and the exits, they're bringing the story in and out of a room with them. Like, I think about how much of Monica's story is happening in that room. And we just don't follow her into her bedroom to actually see her making these terrible phone calls. We don't see the, the physical altercation that she gets in with Phoebe and Chandler. But Phoebe arrives with the, the phone on the cord. And it's just <laughs> such a perfect visual for, wow, they really went at it back there. Um I just I love it. I love the way this is paced. I wait, I love the way it's plotted. And it is an impressive feat to see that they were able to accomplish all that within that 23 minutes. Truly. Speaking of those 23 minutes, <laughs> we can start all the way at the top. Yes. I've got this handy little synopsis written out. Oh, and if you have gorgeous. any thoughts that are specific from moment to moment, you feel free to call it out. Absolutely. I'm in. In the cold open, Joey and Chandler forge through the refrigerator. Joey sips from a glass of what he thinks is cider, but oops, it's fat. Okay, but really, Ross, how? Yes, yes. Do you have thoughts I about, have thoughts the, about fat? the fat? How though? Like, what? It's got. <laughs> it, later, it is said that there are chunks of chicken, chicken floating bits. in it, and like, how, how do you? Have you ever, CJ, in your life, seen a glass of chicken fat? First of all, second of all, have you ever seen it and thought that looks like cider? It's a little stupid. <laughs> it's dumb. It's dumb. And yet somehow we forgive them. Okay. Here's the interesting thing about the fat. Tell me. Initially, it was just joke fodder to get into the episode and mm. then it would have been abandoned after that. But the more the writing process unfolded, the more the writers kept bringing the fat in until they needed a solution to reconcile Ross and Rachel's fight. Initially, the episode ended with Ross and Rachel having a sweet and tender conversation, which is sort of tonally at odds with the rest of the episode. I thought right. that it was a great revision to bring that fat in. It's, it definitely made things more fun. It's Chekhov's fat, right? Like, it is It Chekhov's is fat. something that will show up later. So, Act 1, returning from the bathroom... Chandler asked Joey to relinquish his chair, insisting that he was sitting in the chair first. So let's talk about this whole chair fight thing. <laughs> One, mm -hmm. do you quote unquote relate to it? Did you find it funny? What are your thoughts? I thought it was really goofy. I will say this. You know, when I originally watched this episode, I was, you know, some sort of preteen. Mm. Um, and I did not... My family was three people. It was me, my mom, and my dad. I didn't really have a lot of interactions with young men. I'll put it that way. So in my brain, I was like, "Is this? Is this what? Is this how they? Is this how they behave?" Like I, I could, I had no. Is like, this men? Is this? Is this men? Um, I just had no context for this kind of behavior. So I will say, when I initially watched it as a kid, I remember thinking, "Well, this is really dumb." But they're funny and weird. And I don't know why they're <laughs> acting like this. And now as an adult, I'm like, if I had two male friends that were behaving in this way, I would be like, you can't come. Goodbye. Right. I will get these tickets. You were my... not raised right. You were not raised right. We are done. So I thought it's it's a silly, fun thing. You just have to keep reminding yourself that they are like in their 20s. And yeah. that's why they're behaving like this. <laughs> but yeah. I think that, you know, writers always talk about the stakes Right. Like, yes. why does it matter? And I yeah. think what's funny about this subplot 
is that sometimes you can be self-reflexive about stakes where it matters because the characters think it matters and that's it. (laughs) It's important because (laughs) they said it was important. And sometimes that's all you need. Sometimes that's funny in and of itself. Because who knows what happened outside of that room. Right. But Chandler decided that he needed his room. He needed his chair. And Joey decided to be a dick about it (laughs) for no reason. Uh, So, okay. Monica, meanwhile, can't tell if the short message that her recent ex Richard left on her answering machine is from before or after her breakup, and she debates whether or not to call him. Thoughts there on that subplot? First of all, I will say my first impressions of this, my young impressionable thoughts of this were like, I don't know, this coming from an only child place where I was definitely like, why would he give that information to her? Like, like I had no... I had like no conceit for like that level of intimacy. And my brain was just like blown by the fact that she had his passcode to his answering machine and could erase and like listen to messages and stuff like that. But, you know, my heart did break. My heart did break for her watching her go through this. I felt really bad for Monica because, again, he was the one he was he was the one that got away and there was something you know, about their, they, they could, there was, there was an immovable object. Uh, there was an immovable thing that they could not get past in their relationship. And that was the first time I'd seen, Hey, you might be crazy about somebody, but you can't get past certain needs or goals sometimes. And that will end a relationship. So it was hard for me to see this particular episode, uh, to see her suffering in this way. And then also to see how funny that suffering can be that your grief and your misery can also, can also still be really funny. Um, and I thought, you know, excellent job. She, she was really, really, (laughs) she was really phenomenal in this episode. Um, but yeah, the physical comedy of it, good. I thought that the subplot really made me think of, instead of how dated it was with the answering machines and this and that, haha, 1996 was a different time. <laughs> it made me think of how this subplot would have been written today, which is that mm-hmm. she probably would have like made an idiot of herself on his Instagram or something, right? <laughs> she would have like deep liked something. She would have thought that she was leaving him a DM when it turns out she was leaving him like a very public comment. Oh, yeah. You know? Oh, yeah. Yeah. The dynamics are certainly timeless for sure. And it is so funny to watch Courtney Cox do battle with this answering service. And and you could argue that her antagonist is almost like the mechanized voice. Yes. You, know, you have two new messages. You have now changed the outgoing message. Goodbye. Listen, and hearing out- her like shrilly scream, no. <laughs> I mean, it is sad. It is kind of like a tragedy that she's the only one who never won an Emmy. Yeah. She's so funny. She's amazing on the show. I did not realize that she did not win an Emmy. That is tragedy. Um, yes. But yeah, like I just, I really love her. First of all, I love... <laughs> I love the throwback of her like wearing a slip, like just like in her slip. Like she is the most physically vulnerable person in this episode. And they do that by virtue of her costuming as well. Um, You know, she's she's stripped down to her barest. She's constantly running into the living room to like seize the phone and like have a conversation, like try to erase the past. And she's only making it worse. It's almost like she's a time traveler and just ruining 
like every time she goes back, she ruins the outcome for the future. Like it's just, <laughs> it's so impressive to watch her unravel. And then I just, it's so tragic that she ends up leaving that as the outgoing message. And there's just no time. Like the beautiful time constraints of the episode have made it that she's just run out of time completely to right. be able to change that. Like she, there's you nothing get she can no do. happy ending, Monica. <laughs> None. No, he knows, he knows. And there's nothing you can do about it. And his daughter's going to tell you, and his daughter's <laughs> right. going to tell on you. That's terrible. It's my, I think it might actually be my favorite plots of the episode yeah well i'm curious to get your thoughts here because as you alluded to earlier monica was sort of the center in eccentrics for like the first few seasons you know she was like the stabilizing force yes and then the writer sort of made her like more and more neurotic and this episode <laughs> is kind of like the beginnings of that mm, um like mm-hmm. it, it's it's definitely indicative of that pivot of the monica character so question for you do you prefer Stable Monica or neurotic Monica? <laughs> uh, I don't want us to breeze past your beautiful pun, Pivot. Um, <laughs> pivot I, is what I meant p- to say. Pivot. Um, there's a part of me that really enjoys. I, I think we all we all can agree that over time, characters get exaggerated into their worst qualities as seasons. Which is why go I on. definitely think like seasons seven through ten are like weak sauce. Yeah, yeah, because they're the they're 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 at their worst. They're at their right. like zenith. They're mining it for comedy, but it's so exaggerated. I don't know. I've always enjoyed the fact that Monica was neurotic. I, I liked that about her. I liked that it made her really messy. Mm-hmm. Um, I like her towards the middle okay. of okay. the series. I'll I'll put it that way. I like her towards right. the middle of the series where she is. Definitely neurotic. We're seeing like full display. I'd even say that her character story is in this first season. She's working so hard to tame it that it kind of makes her a little less interesting, in my opinion. Sure. No, that's such a good point. Yeah, I think that a common and classic mistake that sitcom writers make is, like you said, toward the end of the show's run, they just keep hitting that comic game. Yeah, like each character has like a central comic game, right? Exactly. And they just keep hitting that and they sort of they they don't allow the characters to be a bit boring because boring is human. Right. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. There's a point at which it feels like they're just out here getting this bag, right? Like the writers Mm -hmm. are writing the scripts and collecting that check and the actors are going in there doing their job, collecting that check. And they they now know what but what buttons they need to push to get the pellets out <laughs> like, right, you know they, right, they right, know right. exactly what people want and they give yeah. it to them and yeah. it's just kind of like all right we let's send this off there is sort of like a rote or perfunctory feel to those later seasons but like right around here sort of like the early middle it's like you're you're getting the best of both worlds that exactly the characters are allowed to be human and yes boring and also like we're we're discovering like new comic games that derive from their quirks and unique personalities. Exactly. And I think that Monica's character is starting to ascend. And, and I really appreciate that. And two, I do also like that uh, Monica and Ross are reflected, are starting to reflect in each other a little bit more as terrible mm-hmm. as Ross is. <laughs> he, you can now see a little bit clearer how he and Monica are related to each other. Like yeah, you can start that. to see that a little oh, bit more. Oh my gosh. You bring up a great point in terms of Ross's unlikability here. 
mm-hmm. and and Schwimmer's concern that mm-hmm. he would be unsympathetic. I actually like what he contributes to the Monica subplot because he actually drops he drops his anxiety to support Monica. Yes, he right? does. He that does. Is, yeah, is like such a key facet of this episode that kind of goes unnoticed. Is right. like there is genuine concern for his sister. Yeah, especially once she starts to really go to what Chandler calls the bad place. <laughs> <laughs> He doesn't really like pester her as hard to get ready. Right. Um, and right. and he sort of like is more concerned about showing concern for her. So I right. really liked that. But we, of course, have to talk about Ross and Rachel. Oh, God. So <laughs> meanwhile, Rachel just can't decide which outfit to wear to the museum gala. Thoughts. Thoughts. Okay. Well, <laughs> I forgot how horrible his moment was with Rachel when he yells at her. Like, I forgot. I truly forgot how bad it was. And watching it, all I could think was, oh, girl, no. Oh, no. girl. Oh, girl, no. He just no, sucks no, no. all the air out of the room. Like, you can almost feel the audience gasp. <laughs> like, right. oh, jeez. Like, the way he condescended to her, it sounded like he was her dad. Like, it mm-hmm. didn't sound like this was... Her boyfriend, like, trying to express, hey, I'm frustrated. No one is getting ready. Nobody is anywhere near where we need to be. We only have a few minutes here. You know, like, he wasn't trying to empathize or understand that she genuinely wanted to look nice for him. For him. For his big night. That's where all of this was coming from. Granted, she wasn't hearing him either when he was like, hey, this is important to me that you be ready. <laughs> so it was, just, it was, it was bad. It was bad. It's bad. They need to not be together. I, I she should not have gotten off the plane. Uh, I, I, just, <laughs> I, how did you feel CJ? How did you feel about this whole moment? Pretty identical, pretty similar to how you felt. Um, <sighs> I, I wonder if the episode would have been effective if they had heated David Schwimmer's concerns mm-hmm. more than they did even like if they found a way to make him yell at her but in a way that I don't know how do you make that funny how right? do you make it funny yeah I, there had to have been a way I feel like because it just felt serious in that moment and I don't did. know if that was a tonal error or if it did exactly what it was meant to right it, it feels to me like a tonal error like, you think that they could have like just eased up on it a little bit like just thrown little, one or two jokes in there or found a, like a funnier way for him to deliver that i can't even say deliver that monologue because it was not there's no way to make that monologue funny like, yeah to, if they had found a different I don't know if they found more jokes, if they found a funnier way for him to flip out about it, if they find mm-hmm. found something else, because her response to be like, I'm just not going to go that a that felt right. And B, it should have been a much more intense conversation. Like to me, the chicken fat did not necessarily resolve that. Right. Yes. Let's that talk yell. about that. Why do you think that is? I don't think it does, because I mean. At this point, we are starting to see serious structural issues within their relationship. We're we're starting to see how he is trying to consistently impose his will on her. And I get that he's she is his girlfriend. He wants her to come to this event to support him because it's his big night or whatever. But it's like, do you really want her there or do you just do you want a piece of arm candy to show up to this event? Like, what is your purpose of having her 
go. Right. I know that Phoebe makes that beautiful joke, that beautiful joke where she's like, you might be the first one. To, you might be the only girlfriend that arrives at this paleontologist event, which I thought was pretty funny. Um, pretty funny. Um, love it as a one liner. Yes. And I'm also continually annoyed at Friends's like anti-intellectualism. <laughs> <laughs> like that they constantly dog on Ross. Just for True. choosing paleontology as a career. <laughs> True. It's just like stupid. It's and and Although, later on in like season nine when they go to like the paleontology conference and just like <laughs> make fun of all the scientists. Oh. I'm just like <laughs> there's no joke there. But like I don't, I don't I It's not just, comedy, guys. Well, I guess I always think of like there are other scientists that show up on the show, right? Like, you know, Phoebe's dating these guys who have to go to Minsk and stuff like right, that. Right, right, right. Hank Azaria. And not to mention the great Aisha Tyler. Yes, the great Aisha Tyler forever. <laughs> um who sidebar is dating a woman and I'm just like jealous that I did not know that that was a possibility but anyway so I am not I don't want to get off topic um because I tend to cut the off topic things but I will say really quickly that straight up well no pun intended I will say that happiest season was the first time that I learned that Aubrey Plaza was queer oh yeah, really? I was like, I need to keep up on my celebrity news. Bruv, bruv, let's have a whole conversation about it later. Yeah, um, right, we'll, we'll, we'll sidebar, we'll we sidebar. Will, we will talk about that later. Um, <laughs> I have notes and pages of notes for you. Um, but anyway. Anyway. So, to your point, I don't necessarily, I think that they do harp on the fact that he is a paleontologist, but I do think it's really funny because it's like, you know, <laughs> a grown man who made a decision when he was eight, I'm going to be a paleontologist and then like actually did it. We should be, we should all aspire to be Ross in that kind of way. Yes. If you decide as a kid that you like dinosaurs and they even make the joke about his watch with the dinosaur tail <laughs> stopped moving, which I thought was funny. So I'm, I guess I, I wonder if it's more of a joke about paleontology or the fact that he is just a big nerd. Um, yeah. It felt like the, the jokes that air on the side of Ross loves paleontology or like, mm-hmm. Ross loves dinosaurs or is passionate about dinosaurs. That's super funny. I'm realizing I'm talking about like a really fine line here. Gotcha. But, gotcha. But but in particular when it's like paleontologists have never had a girlfriend. <laughs> I don't know why I'm like, grow the fuck up, friends writers. <laughs> You're like, that's not true, guys. Um, but anyway. Uh, but there, let's see. There is one thing that I do want to at least touch on with the fat thing. Or yeah. just a, a point that I want to make sure to hit which is that showing that you would drink this glass of fat, yeah. which if not harmful to your body, is at least like really, really, really disgusting. It's gross. And the fact that like that proves that he's sorry, that he's contrite, that he loves her, to me just like feels really toxic, ew, bad, wrong. I concur with that. <laughs> I agree. Good sir. Um, I feel like... So when you brought up the point that the writers originally were going to resolve this plot with a conversation, that to me feels more, I don't know, responsible, realistic. Like, like yes. they needed to talk that moment out. That was not right. a, hey, do this weird grand gesture for me where you drink the fat because it's right. funny. Because, you know, Chandler and Joey think this is funny. And also because I'm mad at you right now and I want to get back at you. Right. So I'm going to make you do this weird, gross thing. They needed to sit down and have like an actual conversation about what just happened. Why was that? And I, I get it. 
It's a comedy. It's a half hour comedy. Nobody wants to see people like working intensely through their relationship <laughs> issues. But there, you know, I, there's a little part of me that kind of weeps for 11 year old Courtney who watched that and was like, oh, he's going to drink the fat. Uh, you know, like, I, yeah, right. <laughs> you know, the, like, the fact that it's built as this awe moment is the most disturbing thing about the moment. Exactly. Exactly. I'm like, like that is not a grand romantic gesture. No, that it's like not. doesn't bode well. It's not. I mean, and- I will say that this episode does address that toxicity between them in the long term because it's only like another seven episodes until they're broken up. So right. I think like even if they didn't discuss it outright in the writer's room, there was this sense that Ross and Rachel don't have the healthiest relationship. Yeah. So in yeah. a way, you know, it's built into the storytelling that it might be resolved just for this 25 minute episode, but it's not resolved in the long term. Yes. I do think that the writers paid you know, heed to that. Right? right. Right. Yeah. I don't know. I, the, the chicken fat did not work for me. And if, if they wanted the fun, they could have done the fun with the chicken fat joke. And then they also still could have found a way for more conversation. True. true, um, true. They could have had their fat and drank it too. Exactly. Right. <laughs> and then, you know, here comes Rachel looking like a dime. Like she just rolls out of there looking stunning. And I'm like, <laughs> This is the end of the, the episode. Oh, okay. So Ross gets exactly what he wants. And that upset you. Fuck the patriarchy. <laughs> it did upset me. But yeah. Okay. Um, Joey enters wearing every piece of clothing that Chandler owns and announces that he's going commando in them. This is, of course, the escalation of the chair fight. This is... Obviously, the most absurd thing that is happening, even the chicken fat doesn't feel that weird to me in comparison to Joey arriving swaddled in every piece of clothing that Chandler owns and then fully admits to being like fully nude underneath it all, which, you know, we're all nude under our clothes. So whatever. But it's just very funny. The image of Joey doing lunges. Um, Yeah, it's just iconic. (laughs) It's just really iconic. And and it's. It's a really, really great sight gag that also doesn't really make sense unless you buy the fact that Chandler has like one or no pair of jeans, (laughs) only has one pair of shoes. Right. (laughs) Come on, Chandler. Let's take you to JCPenney, okay? Let's invest in two or three more pairs of khakis. I you know that there's dudes out there who have like one suit for work. And like, (laughs) and like, it's all gym shorts and then like a pair of jeans and a pair of sweatpants. Like, you know that. (laughs) You almost buy it where you, or you just barely buy it because it's Chandler. It tracks with his character. Disaster. (laughs) Um, Yes. And then the whole thing with, um, oh, I'm going commando underneath them. It's interesting that in the commentary, we heard a little bit about the writer's brand of comedy theory, which I always enjoy hearing about Mm -hmm. and the producer talks about a term that they use called the shtummy which is what they call um that unexpected additional element to a joke oh and so in this case it kind of annoyed me what the producer called the shtummy so joey comes in wearing all chandler's clothes that's the initial joke and then the shtummy is that he's going commando like ah that's the extra thing that's the thing that puts it over the top and i'm like does it really because of what you just said, it's like we're all naked underneath our clothes. So who the fuck cares? It's like it's a little yeah. gross, you know, that he's probably like sweating right, so much. Right. But it's also like, hey, Chandler, 
Just wash the clothes. Just wash the clothes, man. It'll be fine. And you started this by stealing right. his underwear. Right. Which, for the record, the stealing of the underwear happened before the couch cushions got removed. So was this just Chandler having a fit and just took the underwear? Like, what is going on right. with Chandler and Joey? <laughs> I want to understand. Is this men, What CJ? goes on behind closed doors? <laughs> right. Is it men? Is it men, CJ? Um, it I- might just be men. But I, I will say this, like I, I, I thought it was really fun to have that callback again at the end of the episode where Rachel is, you know, leaving and she's like, I'm going commando. Of course, again, ill because of the relationship, but also see, because, you know, see, I thought that that was more justified, right? Yeah, I thought that that was OK. Joey revealing that he is going commando is like, yes. OK, so what? Right. So what? Other yeah. than. I think what I'm alluding to is that veneer of gay panic. Yes. That correct. sort of permeated all of friends. Yes. Which I acknowledge was there, but don't think that it was as extreme as other critics insist it was. Right. Like when you see those supercuts on YouTube, like all of friends homophobic moments. Oh, good Lord. Like to me, I forgive a lot of those moments because I think that those jokes were devised more to show um the closeness and tenderness that did exist amongst the Mm. male friends. Okay. Which at the time is, I think, what the viewing audience needed to see. And the gay panic was sort of just an acknowledgement more of how the male viewership was more likely to take these moments. But it still didn't negate the fact that these friends were showing closeness and tenderness with each other. Exactly. Exactly right. I, I will say that there were, you know, a handful of gay panic moments around... Cho- uh, Joey around <laughs> maybe yeah. that's their ship name um, <laughs> yeah their ship name is Joey, Joey. you are correct <laughs> but around you know Joey and their behavior that day mm-hmm. you know like of course Chandler sits in Joey's lap right. and then immediately panics when Joey is just like I'm feeling sexy about this like oh I uh, might yeah. get a boner right 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 but see that's kind of what I'm talking about like that is the very interesting precipice upon which friends sat at mm. that time which yeah. was the mid 90s. Yeah. It's like the fact that Chandler would sit on Joey right is <laughs> like yeah. hey that in a way we're flying in the face of gay panic. Right. And then the fact that Joey just jokes about getting a boner <laughs> I'm like some some guys at the time wouldn't even get that far. That's True. my point. True. No, that's a good right? point. And and to your point and this is I don't know probably you might cut this later but like I don't know the first time I had ever seen two women together on a show where it was explicit that these two people are together and married was friends was no totally ross's yeah. ex-wife and so you know there were groundbreaking things that were happening but at the same time you know we also see that joey and chandler occasionally freak out a little bit at their right, own intimacy right. which yeah it's like their relationship was like 80% let's hug it out. Right. 20% no homo. Right. And I think in 2020, we tend to really become indignant and and look at that 20% and be like, how fucking dare they? Yes. But... And, you know, not to be too much of an apologist, but it's like, okay, but y'all have to understand <laughs> that 80% is the special thing that was on television at the time. Yeah. Let's not act like that 80% was a given. Exactly. It just wasn't. That's just a fact. It wasn't. Exactly. Exactly. Not in 1996. You're absolutely no. right. You're absolutely right. That said, that said, my original point still stands, <laughs> which is that it's stupid that Chandler was freaking out. 
that Joey's ball sweat was in his clothes because I'm just like, just wash the damn clothes. Just wash the clothes, man. It's fine. Like, I'm right. sure like you were living, you live at one point with like a duck. Like, it, it's fine. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> the To resolve our D-plot, uh, the resolve for that was very, very easy. They just stuck a bow on Phoebe and called it a day. Like, that was Oh my gosh, resolve. yeah, that giant Christmas bow, which, okay, let me ask you this, Courtney. Yes. Did you get that that was an AIDS ribbon joke? Oh, <laughs> no. Oh, God. So that's definitely something that a modern audience would need a little bit more context around. So she goes, yeah. And then I saw this giant red ribbon and I thought, all right, I'll be political. That is a reference to how everyone was wearing red ribbons at the oh. time, similar to how in 2005, everyone was wearing live strong yellow <laughs> bracelets, right? So- she's sort of tacitly referencing the AIDS ribbon trend. Most yes. people in the viewing audience would understand that that's what she was talking about. Wow. The funny part is Chandler says, what are you supporting? And Phoebe says, duh, Christmas. And it's supposed to be funny in 96, the idea that anyone would find Christmas political. But in 2020, all we do now is politicize Christmas. And it just made me think of the red cup debate that rears its <laughs> right. ugly head at Starbucks every year. So I love that what was initially a Phoebeism is now just sadly regular. <laughs> oh, wow. Oh, wow. And I just want to say again, I want to reference that dress. Super cute. I love that dress. That yellow dress. Very, very, very cute. You'd call that like a tube dress, yeah, like right? a tube dress. And I love her like big sun necklace. The, the choker was oh, very so 90s. Good. The dress was very yes. timeless. The lime green color, I think, was very on trend for the mid 90s, but in a way that still works for today. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The choker is super 90s, but I yeah, loved every yeah. second of it. But it's coming back, man. Like, <laughs> I've seen that choker. It's it's coming back. Yeah. Hey, bring it back. Why not? But anyway, yeah, I just, I, uh, I feel like, you know, again, Phoebe can do what she wants. And the Phoebe storylines are always slightly untethered from the rest of reality, which fits her character. Um, but I do feel bad that she was the one who was ready and then like immediately got knocked off her pedestal by Joey and Chandler. I love the irony of that. The writers in the commentary talk about how they devised the three stories and then Phoebe was sort of the remainder, the loose end that they had to take care of. Yeah. So they had to give her something to do. Yeah. And sometimes you could feel when a character in an ensemble show right. is just given something right. to do. Here, I thought she was put to good use in yeah. terms of that irony that you just described. We give Ross a win in that Phoebe is already in dress to go, and then we take it away. And that sort of increases his anxiety. And it gave her an excuse to run from room to room. You know, she had a moment with the Monica storyline. She found herself involved again with the Choey storyline. I'm just going to go for it now uh, <laughs> with the Choey storyline. And then, you know, I'm not really sure. Like she I guess she was kind of involved with Ross and Rachel. Yeah, she was involved in the Rachel plot, too, because Rachel's distracted finding Phoebe something to wear. Right. So she was definitely put to good use in terms of servicing all of the other different plots. Yeah, she's everywhere. She's good. More Phoebe. Always Phoebe. And then the last thing, we kind of touched on it earlier, the tag, where Chandler gets in the same chair argument with a stuffy British professor. And so I love that the writers are just doubling down on this notion mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. everyone has this innate territorial sense when it comes to things like ownership of chairs. And my favorite line of the whole tag, maybe one of my favorite lines of the whole episode, is when the professor says, but you left the chair area. <laughs> <laughs> to me, that is just a great example of transposing silly 
juvenile dialogue into a mouth of a character where it doesn't belong. I do love that they have basically shown that Chandler has like all these insane quirks and that is just one of them where he's like, if if I've sat in a chair, it's mine now. Like that is a crazy thought to have, but you know, for Chandler, that makes sense. Any remaining thoughts? I'm super impressed. I'm still super impressed by this episode. Uh, Obviously, the feelings and the the feelings about the relationships in the show change as you get older. But I still a very impressive episode. Same. Agree. Again, super shocked at these low or negative reviews that we read about on Wikipedia. The authors of Friends Like Us, The Unofficial Guide to Friends. So even the authors of a friend's book called it forgettable. The script is dull and the performers seem to know it with none of them trying particularly hard to make it work. That's when you're like, did we literally watch the same episode? I feel like we did not. I feel like you did not watch what we just watched. I mean, could they be any more engaged? (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. So much thank you for that, Courtney. I will do that for anyone at any time. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we're, we're clearly in disagreement with these critics. How full would you say this makes your bottle? I'm going to give it a, a solid A. I, I would like to say, you know, if we're doing out of 100%, I would give mm-hmm. this a 96. Not only, nice. you know, for the year, but also because it just it's really... <laughs> It's really well constructed. And the fact that they were able to cram in four storylines within 23 minutes and they didn't have to leave the room, they kept them all in the same room. That's really a feat. And it feels seamless. Um, and, and I'm even going to give them a little bit of credit on the Ross and Rachel of it all, considering that they are headed towards a breakup in this series. So excellent job. 96%. Agree. I would also give it a 96, pretty much for the reasons that you did. It really feels like clockwork. You get the sense that the ensemble is invested. They're having fun. Yeah. Um, they're playing really well off each other. The The writing is working extra hard to make it all flow together in a way that, um, that just simply isn't there in the later seasons. I'm sorry. Agreed. Everything just feels very refined finely tuned and funny. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, by this point, I believe it's their 50th episode. So they are very, they know what they're doing. They know the characters really well. Now they get to have a little bit of fun and showcase their range in acting. Uh, The actors do. And the writers know the characters well enough that they can make something like this work, something a little bit more ambitious like this work. I'm glad that they continue to do bottle episodes after this at least once every season. Yeah, nice. Um, But none necessarily hit the highs of this one, I don't think. Yeah. Um, What else are you watching these days, Courtney? So I just caught up on The Mandalorian. Nice. And I love it so much. I continue to love it a lot. And I just want to say that my son, Grogu... Uh, better be well taken care of. They better not do anything with him. I know he's very powerful, but I I love him. And if they end this season with a cliffhanger and him in any danger, I will have a problem. <laughs> you will have words. <laughs> I will with Moff write Gideon. a strongly worded letter to Disney. 
I'm having so much fun with the Mandalorian. Um, I think that they've really Dave Filoni and company have really pulled off this feat in um, acknowledging all of these like different corners of the Star Wars universe previously untouched or not taken seriously in some yeah. cases. Yeah, like the video games, like those animated series. Like even the Christmas special, yeah, <laughs> and um, also not alienating new or casual viewers. So yes. that is no small feat. Uh, hats off to them. Yeah, uh, and it's just so much fun. Like every it, single week, it, you know, it is. It's cohesive, and I gotta say, every time they reveal a character or they show a new place or a location that maybe we've heard of maybe once or twice. My little heart sings and I'm like, good for you guys, man. Good, good. You did it. I'm proud of you for doing this and doing it well. God, where was this energy for the uh, the last three right, the movies? Trilogy. Good Lord. Ugh. What Sad. about you? <laughs> what are you watching? I am. Well, uh, OK, so my partner, Jonathan, and I just started the Queen's Gambit last night. Ooh, how we're, was it? we're doing our duty to stay on top of the zeitgeist. <laughs> Um, which, you know, I, I think it's really good so far and I'm enjoying it on, on that level of like, I used to be really into chess when I was in grade school. So it's bringing back all those fond memories. Other than that, I am doing, um, the great journey through the twilight zone. I am dedicating myself to watching every single episode of the twilight zone. Nice. There are some episodes that I haven't even heard of because like some episodes get more love than others. Like choice episodes are often played on like sci-fi channel, like during like new year's and 4th of July and stuff. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. So I've been living my, I've been living a lie this whole time thinking that I had seen the majority of the series when really I just kept watching the same 20 episodes over and over again. Um, So some of them are really cool to watch in terms of seeing certain episodes that predate classic movies. Oh, yeah, yeah. Like there's an episode called Mirror Image about doppelgangers that Mm -hmm. Jordan Peele has said directly influenced his conception of us, the movie Us. Wow. Okay. So, yeah. So it's just been nice doing a deep exploration of the sci-fi horror and thriller genres through this iconic TV series. Listen, you're doing it right. You're going back. You're making sure you've done your due diligence. And Rod Sterling somewhere smiling at you. Ready to wrap it up? Let's do it. This has been Bottle Episodes. If you have an idea for a bottle episode from television history that we should cover, or if you're trapped in a single primary location and need to send a distress call, email podcastbottleepisodes at gmail.com. That's podcastbottleepisodes at gmail.com. Say goodbye, Courtney. Bye, everybody.